history has been filled with some amazing events. Even in recent years, we have seen some of the most astonishing events ever to happen in the history of mankind. For example, we have all heard about or read about the sinking of the supposedly unsinkable ship Titanic, and we witnessed the horror of 9-11 as that was played over and over again on the TV on the day it happened. And we have seen the almost unbelievable devastation caused by the tsunami that hit Southeast Asia when the Indian Ocean came ashore on December 26, 2004. Those were remarkable events in any era, in any time, and there have been others in recent times. I can still remember the shock I felt when I saw the news coverage of the Berlin Wall coming down in Germany. I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. So history has been filled with some amazing events, but all of them pale in comparison to one event that is coming sometime in the future. It is the event to which all of human history is pointing. It is the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to planet Earth. The beloved Apostle John had the privilege of seeing it in advance, and his description is recorded for us in Revelation chapter 19. I'd like us to look at that account by way of introduction to our text in Mark 13. So before we resume our consideration of Mark 13, please turn with me to the last book of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Please follow along as I read verses 11 through 21. John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest 
were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. As I read these words, I am once again confronted with my own inadequacy in that there is no way I can say anything that will do justice to the scene that John describes for us in these verses. It is here that John gives us the vision he had of the awesome coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the event to which the book of Revelation has been building since chapter 1, verse 1. All of human history will culminate in Christ's literal bodily return to planet earth. Notice how John describes it in verse 11. He says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. John tells us he is called faithful and true. I can't help but believe that this is in contrast to the beast, the Antichrist, who will be utterly unfaithful to God because he is the false Christ. Jesus is the faithful one, the true one. And this time when he comes, he doesn't come as a baby in a manger. He doesn't come like the meek and humble servant riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey. This coming is not like the one foretold in Zechariah 9.9, which says, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey. No, this time, this time he comes on a white horse and he comes to judge and make war. In the Oriental world, there were two ways in which a king could come into a territory. He could come in peace, or he could come to wage war. When he came in peace, he rode a donkey. When he came to wage war, he rode a white horse. The one who is judged worthy of death will come back fully alive to judge and make war with those who have rejected him. <clears throat> Exodus 15.3 says, The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. This is not how we usually think of the Lord Jesus. We usually think of him as a meek, humble, gentle Savior, and he certainly is that. But when he comes the second time, he will return as a warrior, a judge, and a destroyer. Verse 12 tells us his eyes were like a flame of fire. This speaks of his penetrating judgment. His judgment will be perfectly righteous because with his eyes of fire, he is able to see everything perfectly. He is able to penetrate beyond the external. He knows all the thoughts and intentions and motives of every man's heart. Verse 12 says also, on his head were many crowns. This speaks of his right to rule. That's why he's coming back. He is coming back to establish the millennial kingdom, so he's coming back to rule and reign. I mean, think about it. If that's not why he's coming back, why come back? Why even come back to the earth? Just call the saints to heaven and let's be done with it. 
You don't need to come back to earth unless you're coming back to earth to rule. And that's why he's coming. The one who was given a crown of thorns when he came the first time will come back the second time with a crown of glory. And verse 12 continues, He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. In case there was any question as to the identity of this person on the white horse, now we know for sure because here he is called the Word of God. The opening verses of John's Gospel make it abundantly clear that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Word. John 1.1, you know it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So here he is called again the Word of God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ wearing a robe dipped in blood. He has already waged war against sin, Satan, and death when he died on the cross. Now he returns to wage war on those who have refused him. Verse 14 tells us, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The Bible teaches that both believers and angels are going to accompany Christ when he returns. So, to which group is this referring? The description here is the same as verse 8 of this chapter, which describes the church, the bride of Christ. Furthermore, chapter 17, verse 14, predicts that believers will accompany Christ for this event. So these are believers in Christ. Let me be more specific. This is you and me. Colossians 3, 4 says... When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When he appears, we will appear with him in glory. And here we are in verse 14. Verse 15 tells us, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. He created this universe with his word, So it will be a small task to destroy armies and rebels with his word. And the end of verse 15 says, He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You see, the king is coming to rule. It says very clearly, he will rule them with a rod of iron. That means his rule will be absolute. He will tolerate no rebellion in the kingdom to come. And then the closing phrase, he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That, beloved, is a horrific description. The picture that is being presented here is one that first century people would have understood immediately. A wine press usually had two layers to it. There was an upper vat and there was a lower vat. In the upper vat, the grapes were trodden and the juice would be squeezed out and then collected in the lower vat. So this picture here is stating basically that God's wrath against sin is so great that people who reject Christ will in a sense be thrown into a huge 
judgment vat, and Jesus will trample them and totally crush them. That's the picture. And verse 16 tells us, He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who was rejected as king will return as king of kings and Lord of lords. When he was here on this earth, the people said, we will not have this man rule over us. No, thanks, but no thanks. But when he returns this second time, he will rule. The king comes to reign. Verse 17 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, or the great supper of God. You can't help but think of the contrast between this supper and the one mentioned earlier in this chapter back in verse 9. The marriage supper of the Lamb is an occasion of celebration. That's verse 9. The supper mentioned in this verse is an occasion of judgment. And the outcome is so certain that this angel actually invites the birds to the supper before the battle actually begins. I've mentioned a couple times recently that it is fascinating to note that even during this present day, there are so many birds that migrate directly over Israel that it is a problem for both commercial and military flights in and around Israel. The birds fly over Israel instead of over the Mediterranean Sea to the west because they need to eat during their migration, and they fly over Israel instead of flying over the countries to the east of Israel because Israel is far more fertile than the desert countries to the east. So when this angel calls together all the birds, it won't be a new location for many of them. They already go back and forth over that land so they know it well. Verse 18 says, Gather together so you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and all those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Jesus alluded to this feast in his Olivet Discourse when he taught about the future tribulation period and his second coming. In Matthew 24, 27, and 28, he said, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Jesus connected this feast of carnage with his second coming. John tells us in verse 19, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The beast is the Antichrist, the man of sin, man of lawlessness, called by many titles in Scripture, first introduced in the book of Revelation in chapter 11 and further described in the opening verses of Revelation 13. John tells us here that he has his forces gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse. That is amazing derangement of mind. It is amazing lunacy. They actually think they can defeat Jesus. They know he's coming back. 
Because throughout the tribulation period, that's the message that will be proclaimed by believers. Repent, for the kingdom is coming. The king is coming to bring the kingdom. Repent. People on planet earth will know that that's the message. The king is coming. So the beast gathers his forces together to make war against him who sat on the horse. It's incredible. Incredible delusion of mind. And verse 20 says, Then the beast was captured. Notice that description. It's almost this, as if this story has been building to some huge climactic battle. And then all of a sudden we get to this point and it's, it's almost like it's a letdown. The beast was captured. That's it. There's no struggle, no battle. The, the, the end result is never in doubt. Then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So there's not even any battle. There won't be a struggle because the power of the Lord Jesus is so great that the beast and the false prophet, who is also described in chapter 13, will simply be captured. And they will be captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire, and they will still be in torment there 1,000 years later, according to chapter 20, verse 10. This is the first mention of the lake of fire. The beast and the false prophet will be the first two people sent there. Today, when people die in rebellion and unbelief, they go to a place called Hades. But eventually... They will be consigned to the lake of fire, which is the final hell. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that hell was created for the devil and his angels. But people will be sent there because they refuse God's grace found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This chapter closes in verse 21 by saying, And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him, who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Again, notice there's not even a, a battle. We, we don't have to do any fighting. Jesus will not even have to do any fighting. It will all be over in an instance with the utterance of a simple word from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. All these rebels gathered for the battle will be slain, and the birds will begin to consume their bodies. This is the same topic we have been considering for several weeks now in Mark chapter 13. And I want us to now go back to that passage as we resume our look at Mark chapter 13. Please follow along as I read verses 24 through 31. Mark chapter 13, verse 24. <clears throat> Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. 
When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Let me remind you that Jesus spoke these words in response to some questions from his disciples. Back in verse 4 of this chapter, they asked Jesus about the consummation and the end of the age. Jesus proceeded to answer their question by giving them a sweeping overview of the future seven-year tribulation period. He told them that during this future seven-year tribulation period, the Jewish people would be persecuted fiercely, almost to the point of obliteration. In fact, in verse 20, he says, Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Because God chose the people of Israel and made them promises about a future kingdom, he will not allow his elect people to be annihilated. The Lord Jesus will come to this earth to stop the carnage. According to verse 24, he will come after that tribulation. That verse says he is going to turn off all the lights of heaven, the sun, the moon, and the stars, so there will be pitch black darkness. I think that will get everyone's attention. Everyone will be looking heavenward, and then he will appear in blazing glory. Every eye will see him, Scripture says. Jesus gave his disciples all this information in response to their questions about the consummation of all things. But Jesus didn't stop there. After giving all this information, Jesus went on to draw some practical applications and implications from what he had just taught. You see, beloved, when the Lord tells us about the future, he doesn't do it just to satisfy our curiosity. He doesn't do it just so we can put together charts on end times events. Whenever the Word of God tells us about the future in passages of predictive prophecy, there are always practical applications and exhortations connected to the predictions. And that's exactly what we see in this text before us. After Jesus told his disciples about his future second coming, he began to give exhortations for readiness to those who will be living during that time. Those exhortations go through the rest of the chapter. So notice that the chapter does not stop with verse 27. Jesus could have stopped his teaching there. Okay, you ask about the consummation of all things. How is it going to all end? Here's how it's all going to end. Now, end of story. No, but Jesus didn't stop there. After telling the story, he drew some applications, some implications. And notice how this section begins. Verse 28. He says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender 
and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. This was an illustration that the disciples and the first century believers would have easily understood. They would have immediately understood. Fig trees were abundant in the land of Israel and still are. They're all over the place. Therefore, even in the future, when the Jewish people living in the land of Israel read these words, they will know exactly what Jesus is saying here. When the branch of a fig tree puts forth leaves, that means that summer is right around the corner. In the same way, now this is the parallel that Jesus is making. In the same way, when people begin to see all the things that Jesus has been describing in verses 5 through 14, they should know that his return is right around the corner. That's the parallel. You see the fig leaves, you know summer is coming. You see all these events I've been talking about, you know that my coming is right around the corner. And so he says in verse 29, So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near, at the doors. Now what is Jesus referring to when he says, when you see these things? Well, what has he been talking about? Back in verses 5 and 6, Jesus describes some of the events that will take place during the first half of the seven-year tribulation period. He says in verse 5, Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. Deception will reign throughout the future seven-year tribulation period. That is why Jesus gives this warning. The Antichrist will deceive multitudes, and the false prophet will deceive just as many and maybe even more. But even prior to or along with those dominant figures of the end times, there will be many people proclaiming themselves as the one who can solve the problems of the world. They will proclaim themselves as the answer to man's problems. They will claim to be Christ, and tragically, many will believe them. And Jesus says in verse 6, For many will come in my name, saying, I am he and will deceive many. By the way, this corresponds to the first seal of Revelation chapter 6. The first seal that Jesus breaks in Revelation 6 is the coming of the Antichrist and the emergence of a false, deceptive peace. It starts out peaceful, but then it turns to war, disaster, and death in the next three seals in Revelation 6. And that is described in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, but when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. And that is exactly what we see described in Revelation chapter 6. The first seal is the emergence of a deceptive world peace. The second seal is war and killing. All of these tragedies result in massive death, which is the fourth seal in Revelation chapter 6. The parallels between Revelation 6 and the Olivet Discourse are clear and obvious because Jesus' words here and Revelation 6 are describing the same time period in the future. What's the difference? Why the 
right? Why the repetition? Well, for one thing, the book of Revelation emphasizes the global scale of these events, whereas Jesus is more focused on how these things will affect the, the elect, the Jewish people. But both passages are describing the same time period. And the last phrase in verse 8 says, These are the beginning of sorrows. The word sorrows in my translation is also the word birth pangs, which is the way it is translated in most of our other English translations. So Jesus compared this time to the birth pains of a woman in labor. They start out, they usually start out slowly and with less intensity, but they increase in rapidity and intensity. That's exactly the way the seven-year tribulation period will unfold. It will start out peaceful. But then the birth pangs will begin as seals 2 and 3 and 4 are opened as described in Revelation 6. These things are the beginning of sorrows. It really gets intense when the abomination of desolation takes place. And so down in verse 14, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter it in to take anything out of his house. And let him who is, on the, who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. So these are the things Jesus is referring to in verse 29 when he says, so you also, when you see all these things, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. And then he says in verse 30, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, the natural question that arises is to what generation is Jesus referring he obviously isn't referring to the generation living when he spoke these words because all these things didn't take place in the first century. The abomination of desolation didn't happen then. The signs in the heavens didn't happen then. The return of Jesus to the earth didn't happen then. The gathering of his elect to establish the kingdom didn't take place then. So Jesus is obviously referring to the generation alive when all these events begin to happen. That's this generation, this one he's been talking about. After all, that's the point of his illustration with the fig tree. He used the picture of the branch of the fig tree putting forth leaves to illustrate the point that when you see that taking place, you know summer is near. In the same way, when people see the events mentioned in verses 5 through 14 beginning to take place, they should know that the return of Jesus is near. It's right at the doors. I mean, it's right around the corner. Therefore, those who are living 
when the events mentioned in verses 5 through 14 begin to take place, that generation will not pass away until everything is accomplished to end the present age and bring in the new age, the millennial kingdom. Furthermore, God will not allow his chosen people, the Jewish people, to pass away without fulfilling what he promised to them. Satan will try to accomplish that. He will try to stop that, to thwart that through the Antichrist, but God will not allow it to happen. The generation that sees the events of verses 4 through 15 beginning to unfold, this generation will be preserved and will be the very generation that sees the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. It is absolutely certain, beloved, that this will happen, that all this will happen, and that it will happen exactly this way. How can we be so sure? Verse 31 tells us how. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. That is a, that is a monumental statement. It is breathtaking in its scope. Jesus had no hesitation whatsoever in asserting that his words, not all of his words, but specifically he's referring to his words here. His words are more lasting and unchangeable and permanent than heaven and earth. This present heaven and earth will pass away someday, but the words of Jesus will never pass away. They are certain and sure and unfailing. I've mentioned this kind of thing in the past, but it's worth repeating it again to emphasize the point. In the Greek language of the New Testament, there are two ways to say no or to negate something. The speaker or writer can use the little word ou, or he can use the word may, m with a long a, ou or may. Both of those words mean no or not. And both of them are used throughout the Greek New Testament. Guess which one is used here? Right. Both of them. Both of them. Both words are used to negate the possibility of Jesus' words passing away. It is a double negative in the Greek language, which is the strongest way to negate something. Now, you know that in English it is poor grammar to use a double negative. But in Greek, it is the strongest way possible to express a negative or a negation. That is the construction used here. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means, will never, ever, can happen, not a chance, pass away. That's what Jesus was saying. When Jesus says something is going to happen, it is going to happen. It doesn't matter if we can understand how it will happen. And it doesn't matter if we believe that it can happen. It will happen. It doesn't matter if we can explain it or not. It will happen. Heaven and earth will pass away someday. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. 
Heaven and earth will pass away to make way for the new heavens and the new earth, but the words of Jesus will never pass away. They will never fail. They will never falter. They will never break down. Jesus said all this is going to happen someday here in Mark 13, and mark it, it will happen someday just like Jesus said. The time of tribulation will come to this earth, and after that tribulation, to use Jesus' exact words, after that tribulation, Jesus will return to this earth in glory and splendor and majesty. You can count on it. You can bank on it. You can plan on it because it will happen. It doesn't matter that most people in our world don't believe it. It doesn't matter that many people in our world even deny it. And there's a sense in which it doesn't matter that most people in our world live as if it's not going to happen. It is going to happen. And those who live as if it's not going to happen are going to be filled with a regret that is beyond description. There's, there's just no way to put in words the regret that will fill their hearts and minds when they see how wrong they were. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, 30, that when this happens, when all of this happens and he comes back, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. People will mourn because they will have wanted, if you can imagine this, they will have wanted their man, the Antichrist, to continue to rule and reign. And they will mourn the fact that he is going to lose. And they are going to lose. And, that, and also people will mourn because at that point they will know their judgment is certain. It is too late for them to repent, even if they wanted to repent. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. It will be a regret that is unspeakable, incomprehensible, when people realize how wrong they were, that they were on the wrong side. So how about you? Do you believe the words of Jesus? Do you really believe the words of Jesus? I'm not talking about a mere mental ascent in which you say you believe the words of Jesus, but they have no impact on your life, no bearing on your life. I'm talking about really believing the words of Jesus in the sense that they affect your life. They affect your decisions. Do you believe the words of Jesus in the sense that you build your life on them? His words are certain. As he put it here in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means will never, ever, can't happen, not a chance, pass away. This is how life on planet Earth is going to culminate. It's not going to end in the, the, the population of the world being destroyed by nuclear weapons so that nobody's left alive. That's not how it's going to end. It's not going to end in global warming consuming all of us so that we just overheat and die. It's not going to end in all the way by some massive meteor hitting 
planet Earth and killing everybody. All of these things that you read and you hear if you keep your antenna up. This is what people say. That, that we need to be, we've we got to be careful because here's, the world is heading toward an end. It's headed toward nuclear obliteration or global warning or some comet or some, something hitting. That's not how it's going to end. It's not going to end that way. It's going to end exactly the way Jesus said it's going to end. Because heaven and earth will pass away. His words will never pass away. He told us how it's going to end. And this is how it's going to end. Let's bow together as we close. <clears throat> as you bow your head in closing this morning, I urge you to consider and contemplate the words of Jesus. He not only told his disciples about the consummation of all things, how it was all going to end, but he gave a lesson saying, listen, when this stuff starts happening, people who are alive should know that my coming is it's near, it's right at the doors. And the reason Jesus said that is because in his graciousness, he doesn't want people to be caught off guard. He wants people to be ready. But tragically, many, many people will not be ready. Just like most people in our society today, most people in our world today are not ready for death. They're not ready for the future. They're not ready for eternity. That's the sad reality of the world in which we live. So I must ask you, are you ready? Are you ready for eternity? Are you ready for death? If God in his sovereignty were to choose that when you walk out of this building here in just a few minutes, you drop dead or you are in a car accident or whatever may be the case, and you, you die, are you ready for eternity? Do you really know Christ? Not just know about him or know of him. Do you know him? Do you believe his words? Not with mere mental assent, but do you believe his words in the sense that they affect your life. They affect your decisions. You build your life on what Jesus said. Do you really believe in him in that way? That's what it really means to believe in Jesus, not just mental assent. Do you believe in him? Do you believe in his words? Are you ready? If you're not, and you enter eternity unready, uh, unprepared and not ready, there is no way I can describe the regret that will fill your heart. It's unspeakable. Don't postpone. Surrender to Christ today. Father, as we contemplate the powerful words of Jesus here in Mark 13 and also John's words in Revelation 19, we are moved by the thought that you were willing to reveal the future to us. And maybe it doesn't answer every question we have and we can't figure out how everything's going to fit together, but you certainly have sh shown us a great deal and you've told us enough for us to know how it's going to all end. And it's going to end exactly how Jesus said it would end. Not like the pro prognosticators of our day who have their theories. It will end like Jesus said it will end. And Father, I pray that each and every one of us hearing these words right now, are ready 
And for any who are not ready, Father, we ask that your Spirit would do whatever is necessary to stir their hearts and move their hearts so they would turn and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would believe his words and believe them in the sense of building their lives on them. Stir our hearts, move our hearts to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.